It's my pleasure this morning to introduce our speaker, Pastor Erwin Ince. Erwin is the senior pastor of City of Hope Church in Columbia, Maryland. He and his wife, Kim, moved to Maryland from Brooklyn, New York in 1995 and have been residents of Columbia since 1997. He was an engineer by profession when the Lord called him to pastoral ministry in 2000. He's a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary and he has been the pastor um, of City of Hope since 2007. Um, he enjoys spending time with his family, um, being active in the community, and is a CrossFit enthusiast. He's actually already fit in a couple workouts since he's been here. Um, so please join me in welcoming Pastor Ince this morning. Good morning, Covenant College. Hey, amen. Ah, amen. It's good. Uh, to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, first time in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, experiencing the fog uh, of the morning, praying that uh, my message doesn't resemble that fog in any way at all this morning. Uh, I want to spend time uh, with you this morning looking at uh, the first seven verses of the sixth chapter of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 to 7. And I titled this message, um, The Rhythm of Conflict, The Rhythm of Conflict. And uh, conflict and community uh, go together. Uh, they are actually inseparable. And um, I think this passage helps us out a little bit in that. And uh, I, I've got a theme. I always uh, try to have a theme for the message, uh, something that I want to uh, get across the main point, if you will. And my theme is this. Uh, it's that uh, the resolution, uh, the resolution of the church's song uh, is delight. And uh, the Holy Spirit uses even conflict to bring us there. Uh, that there is a song for Jesus' church, and that song resolves in delight, but the Holy Spirit uh, uses even conflict uh, to bring us there. And uh, let me read uh, these uh, seven verses of Acts chapter 6 uh, into your hearing. Here's God's word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the, the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, uh, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Of these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bless your name 
today, and we thank you for this word that you have given us through which your spirit speaks to us, this word that is not dead but is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And our confession this morning, Lord, is that our hearts are fully exposed to you, and you know precisely what we need to hear, precisely, Lord, uh, what we need to have uh, come down deep into our very souls that we might grow in grace. And so we pray that you would do the work as only you can by the power of your Spirit, and we'll be careful to give you all glory and adoration and honor and praise in Jesus' matchless name. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, I am a, uh, a jazz enthusiast, and the, uh, the artists that I particularly love are the musicians from a generation ago, like uh, Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk, uh, but in particular, my absolute favorite is uh, John Coltrane, and I have, I actually think I own uh, probably most of uh, the songs that uh, that John Coltrane uh, produced. It is my uh, perfect uh, study music, uh, my perfect sermon preparation music, my uh, perfect uh, relaxation music, uh, whatever it is. I, I've even uh, worked out to uh, John Coltrane's music. <laughs> my playlist of Coltrane music on my iTunes is, goes for like hours. And so when I was reflecting on this text this morning, I was actually reminded of John Coltrane and his music. And here's why. I, I love his music because Coltrane was a master at the art of dissonance in jazz. Uh, every song, every song has a melody, uh, a delightful sound that makes listening to it uh, extremely pleasurable. And dissonance is the use of, of notes and chords that fall outside of that melody, and they create a, a tension, uh, a, a conflict, if you will, within the song. And those dissonant chords and dissonant notes can be piercing and shocking, but they, they get our attention and they actually bring us into the story of the song. And Coltrane was a master at drawing you in with this dissonance and, and creating this tension and conflict as you long for the restoration and the recovery and the resolution of, of the melody. And it's actually like that when it comes to conflict in the church and conflict in our lives. Uh, conflict is a dissonant note. It is surrounded by tension. And, and we all know that uh, conflict is unavoidable. It doesn't matter where we are. We experience conflict likely every day of the week in some way, shape, or form. But when it comes to Jesus' church, right, if, it's if there's conflict or when there's conflict, Christians can uh, become tense and dismayed because we say that's not how it's supposed to be. And even non-Christians or people who are struggling with the Christian faith look at conflict in the church and, and, and say, these Christians can't even get along, right? Why do I want to be bothered with that? Why would I waste my time? 
think that in this text we see a rhythm of conflict uh, within the church that takes us further than any, uh, either of those two uh, pictures paint. These seven verses in Acts 6 are commonly understood as the beginning of a formal diaconate ministry within uh, the church that is the formalized beginning uh, of a ministry of mercy with people appointed to oversee that ministry, and it comes about as a way to resolve conflict. Uh, the rhythm of conflict, the, the pattern, the, the movement of it that we find in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit chooses to use even conflict to bring about His purposes for His church. And so I have four D's in our time that I want to work through in these first, uh, seven verses of Acts 6. I want to talk about the dispute in verse number 1. I want to talk about uh, delegation in verses 2 to 3. I want to talk about devotion in verse number four and delight in verse, uh, verses five to seven. Uh, dispute and delegation and devotion and delight. First, the dispute. Uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, uh, says in verse number one that these days, uh, in these days, the disciples were multiplying. As the disciples were multiplying, a, a complaint arose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. And the complaint was that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of resources for those who were in need. And Luke has already said back in chapter uh, number 4, at the end of chapter 4 of Acts, he has already said that in the church there was not a needy person among them. People with means had voluntarily sold their, their houses and their property and their land, and they laid the money at the apostles' feet so that those needs in the church could be met. But now there's a dispute within the church over that ministry. And notice that Luke says, quote-unquote, in, in these days, and the these days that he was talking about are described in the preceding verse at the end of chapter 5, where he says in verse number 42 of chapter 5 that every day in the temple and from house to house, uh, the apostles uh, did not cease teaching and preaching that the, the Christ is Jesus. Uh, the apostles were focused on the ministry that the Lord had given them, and they didn't cease their, their focus to teach and preach that Jesus is the Messiah. And guess what? Right? Things are going well. In spite of persecution from the outside, from the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council, on the inside of the church, things are running smoothly. The disciples are increasing in number. And isn't that how it works? Things are running well, and then bam, right out of left field, there's a problem. And the deal is that we shouldn't be surprised when conflicts arise, right? Because you're dealing with people. So conflict is always going to arise in the church and in ministry and in life. And the fact of the matter is there isn't anywhere you can go that will be conflict-free. In this case, the dispute arises because of ethnicity and language. Culturally speaking, everybody in the church at this point are Jewish. 
They become believers in Jesus as the Messiah that they've been hoping for. And there are literally thousands of them. And some of them are native to Jerusalem. And they spoke Aramaic as their primary language. And these are the Hebrews Luke is talking about. And uh, and they are probably the majority within the church. And the others are from uh, the diaspora. They, They aren't native to Jerusalem, but came from other parts of the Roman Empire. And and some weren't even Jewish by birth, but had conferred it to Judaism. And these folks spoke Greek, and they are the Hellenists. And this dissonant chord comes in the middle of a melodious song, and it comes as they are trying to build a faithful community. But now there is murmuring and grumbling, and, and, and this can actually help us in how we understand conflict when it comes because nobody is intentionally trying to harm anybody else. There was neglect, and this neglect was real, but it was unintentional. It's not like, right, it's not like the apostles were sitting around and and thinking to themselves, you know, we got to tolerate these Hellenists in the church, and and we really don't like them, so let's not give their, their widows any of the daily distribution. Let's shortchange them. Oh, there's a language barrier, and there's a natural inclination towards those you can communicate easily with. And my point is that, that even the exercise, even in the exercise of good deeds, it does not necessarily prevent conflict. Uh, Dr. Christine Paul uh, wrote a book called Living into Community cultivating practices that sustain us. And she, uh, last year, was interviewed on uh, an audio journal that I listened to, and she made this uh, statement. Uh, I think I gave, if you could put it up. Yeah, there's a statement that she made. She said, you know, if you don't have to sustain the relationships over a long term, it's easy to generate a strong sense of community for a period. Sustaining community is even harder than offering hospitality to strangers. You need more than good intentions to have community. You, you think that if you're doing something good and you want good, it's going to be good. But there are plenty of opportunities in community for grumbling and envy. The church had instituted a good thing. The daily distribution of food and resources for the needy among them was an outstanding practice, but it wasn't enough to prevent a dispute, to prevent conflict. And even though it was undesired, the conflict wasn't the enemy. The conflict was actually the opportunity. And the question was, is this conflict going to be destructive or constructive for the community? And so they begin to resolve the dispute, the dissonance in the song with delegation. And the 12 apostles called, they called a congregational meeting. Luke says they they called together the full number of the disciples and they said to them, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And if we're not careful, we might think that the apostles were saying, you know, this serving tables, this ministry to the needy is somehow beneath us. But that can't be the case because it's the apostles who've been doing this ministry all along. If they had that attitude, they would have never taken it on. The the problem is that it has become too much for them to handle, and the Lord is using this dispute to show it to them. 
similar to what we find in the 18th chapter of Exodus when Moses is judging the people uh, from sunup to sundown. The Bible says that whenever there was a dispute among the people, they would come to Moses and he would make a decision. And, and in Exodus 18, we find his father-in-law Jethro coming to Moses and basically saying to him, listen, Moses, what you are doing is not good. You are going to kill yourself trying to carry this whole load. You can't do it alone. You need to appoint able men from the people who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe so that they can share the load with you. So Moses does that. He selects and he appoints leaders under him to share the load. But, but, but notice with me how it works out in the new covenant community. The Spirit of God has been poured out on all the people, and so the ability for wise discernment doesn't reside in the leadership alone. The apostles say to the church, Brothers and sisters, select from among you men, seven men of good reputation who are full of the spirit and of wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. In other words, this is delegation. It's not that the, uh, the physical needs that need to be met uh, are less significant than the spiritual needs. and That wasn't the church's attitude. and That's clear in the standard that the apostles set for the men who would be responsible for this ministry. They had to be full of the Holy Spirit and, and full of wisdom. Uh, uh, it wasn't that they had to be administratively gifted or require a degree in social work. Their requirement was godliness. And you have to love the balance here and what the apostles do. It's not a top-down approach. They, they don't say, you know, we're the apostles, so we make every decision. It's more like we've been preaching and teaching the Word of God, and we know that the Holy Spirit has been given to the people to hear and respond and to live out the implications of the Word, so they have all they need to decide who among them should be appointed for this ministry. They bring the whole community together and they empower them uh, for this decision because they trust that the Spirit is at work within the church. It's not a fear that the church is going to mess it up. And I said there was a balance, right? It's delegation and not abdication. They don't abdicate their responsibility. They, de they delegate and empower the church, basically saying, you have the Spirit, so you're well able to determine which of these seven men meet the qualifications and should serve in this way. But they weren't saying, you all decide and we'll get out of it completely. This is the first instance where we see how the church, how Jesus' church is supposed to go about the appointing of leaders, the Holy Spirit fills the church, and the church isn't to presume or live as though all of the spiritual insight resides in the leadership. That's actually dangerous, and that has to be rejected, that approach. Uh, the promise that Peter had uh, referred to when he preached his sermon in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost uh, from the book of Joel was that the Lord would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, and, and he said to the people, this is what you are seeing here, and it's being lived out before us in these seven verses. 
But at the same time, we actually see real authority and responsibility. The congregation gets to select who they'd like to have in leadership here, but they are appointed to serve over the ministry of mercy. They have actual authority and responsibility. So the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that there isn't real spiritual leadership. It means that there is a rhythm and there's a flow within Jesus' community where the people have been given eyes to see godliness exhibited among them and say, that's the type of leader we want. In this rhythm of conflict, they are making their way back to the melody, and the melody ends in delight. But before we get there, we, we see this third D, the apostles' devotion. They say basically that when we appoint the seven to this duty, we will be able to continue devoting ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The, the conflict had created a situation where the church had to respond and order things the way that they should be ordered uh, 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 for the church to remain healthy. What was right and proper was for the apostles to be primarily engaged in to be busying themselves with, with, with prayer and the ministry of the Word. Their first work to, was to be constantly in prayer. Secondly, they were to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've already made this point, but I'm going to make it again by quoting from uh, John Stott. And what he says in his commentary on this text is that there is no hint whatever that the apostles regarded social work as inferior to pastoral work or beneath their dignity. It was entirely a question of calling. They had no liberty to be distracted from their own priority task. In other words, they needed to be free to do what God had called them to do. Let me get technical for just a minute to reinforce the fact that there isn't this sense in Jesus' church of a sacred versus a secular distinction that is being made here. It wasn't we'll deal with the important spiritual stuff and appoint others to deal with the less important physical stuff like feeding the poor. The distinction is between calling. And so here's the technical point. In verse 4, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the ministry of the word in verse number 4 is the diaconia of the word. And back in verse number 1, the dispute uh, arose over the way the daily distribution was being administered. Well, the daily distribution in verse number 1 is the daily diaconia. It is the daily ministry. In other words, we are dealing simply with two ministries within the church, two aspects of what it means to be the church, word and deed together, preaching the word and caring for the needs of the poor. Apostles called to do one and the seven appointed to the other. When folk are devoted to the thing they ought to be devoted to, you strike a delightful chord. What the apostles said, Luke tells us, pleased the whole assembly they selected these seven men, Stephen and Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And they set them before the apostles who prayed uh, for them and laid hands on them, ordaining them to this ministry. And there are two delightful chords that I want to point out here at the end of this message. The, the first is that all seven of these men had Greek names. It's likely that all seven of these men appointed to this ministry were Hellenists. 
Luke even points out the fact that Nicholas was a proselyte. He had been converted to Judaism, but the deal is that the majority of the people in the church were Hebrews, not Hellenists. All the apostles were Hebrews, and now for the first time, you actually have some diversity in the leadership of the church. The Spirit of God at work in the church had to have produced humility and wisdom in this process. Humility had to be at work for the Hebrews uh, not to dominate the process and say, let's make sure we get our boys in office. It wasn't a popularity contest. The majority was in agreement with the minority that the wisest thing, the thing that would produce the most health for the church was to have members of the minority appointed to this duty. They were willing to submit to the leadership of people from a different group. It wasn't, let's throw the Hellenists a bone to appease them. It, is, it was, this is what it means. This is actually what it means to be the people of God, uh, to be the body of Christ. Second delightful chord is Luke's summary in verse number 7 when he said that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The apostles are free to continue their witness, and the word of God continued to increase. It grew in reach and in depth. The, the people are growing as disciples of Jesus, and new disciples are being added to the church at a rapid rate. So much so, Luke says, that a large number of the priests are becoming Christians. The, the seed of the gospel has found fertile soil in the most unexpected pl place, even the priests. First note from the text in verse number one is this delightful melody that the disciples were increasing in number, and the last, the last note bring us, brings us right back to that melody in an even greater fullness. The word is increasing, and the disciples are multiplying, and even priests are believing. We have delight here at the end, but the rhythm of conflict will continue. Just keep reading through Acts, and you find more dissonant chords arising in the church. And so whether you're a Christian or not, what you shouldn't expect is that you'll see the eradication of conflict within Christian community. We got a New Testament that tells us that story. But what you should expect to see in Jesus' community, what you should expect to see is the Spirit of God at work in the church providing wisdom in the middle of conflict. See, because our tendency with conflict is to respond with either fight or flight. We either uh, put up our fists to fight it out, or we run away and we separate. And what if there's a better response than either of those two? When the dispute arose, the Hellenists, they didn't dig in and fight against the Hebrews uh, as if they were enemies, but they also didn't break out and form like First Hellenist Church of Jerusalem either. We might tend towards fight or flight. But the rhythm of conflict should revise our expectations of what the Christian life and life in Christian community is like. There is a better way. It is the way of looking 
to the Spirit for what makes for health and peace. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 41 that there's a day coming when he will send his holy angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawlessness and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Uh, but until that day comes, conflict and community go together. You can't have one without the other. However, it is not a dire and hopeless message. Instead, there is a rhythm to it that makes us delightfully dependent upon God's Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you are trustworthy, and even among your people, uh, because we are people and because uh, we still do wrestle and struggle with sin. We will still have to uh, go through times and periods of, of conflict, but we pray that your spirit would be at work such that it doesn't destroy our sense of community or our trust in you, but that we look with delightful dependence to your spirit for wisdom to work out what makes for health and peace among your people. We trust you for this and we praise you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen, amen, and amen.